Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this, the inaugural event of the Humanitas Visiting Professor of Film and Television here at St Anne's. I'm Tim Gard, I'm, I'm the principal here, and my role this evening is simply to thank you all for coming. Um, in a moment, I'll ask Professor Laura Marcus, the Goldsmith Professor of English Literature here at Oxford, to introduce this evening's conversation with our visiting professor, Michael Winterbottom, and our panel. First, let's let me give you a little bit of context. Um, the Humanitas Visiting Professor of Film and Television is part of the Humanitas series of uh, professorships and lectures given by visiting professors in Oxford and in Cambridge. And they exist thanks to the inspiration of Lord Weidenfeld. George Weidenfeld has done so much for Oxford. He pioneered nearly 20 years ago here at St Anne's the Weidenfeld Visiting Professor in European Comparative Literature from which the current grand plan of the Humanitas Lecture Programme emerged in the past three or four years. He's created, through the Institute of Strategic Dialogue, the Weidenfeld Scholarship Programme that brings each year to Oxford from the far borders of Europe, the Caucasus and the Middle East, master's students whose studies here prepare them to take up leadership roles in their own countries. He's also sponsored the Weidenfeld Translation Prize in Oxford run by New College St Anne's and the Queen's College a prize specifically for translators, which gives a spotlight to the best literary translation published each year. George Weidenfeld has also been one of the prime movers that has brought to Oxford the Blavatnik School of Government and the Professor in Israel Studies. And in all the ideas that he's made flourish here in this university, there's one abiding principle. He looks for ways to break down boundaries, both geographic and intellectual, and to bridge the boundaries between the world of the academy and the world beyond. And it's a particular pleasure to welcome George once again to St Anne's this evening and to say thank you to George for all he's done. We're very proud to have him here as an honorary fellow. But the most expansive example of George's vision has been the Humanitas programme. In Oxford, we've already seen visiting professors in the history of ideas, of rhetoric, of historiography, classical music, contemporary art, architecture, interfaith studies, to name just a few. The professors themselves have come from both within the academy and from outside, from the world of the creative arts. And they have connected the world of the intellect to the world of the imagination. And this evening, Michael Winterbottom, the professor of film and television, demonstrates all these virtues. The chair has been made possible by the generosity of the Woodward Charitable Trust, and Sean Woodward is sorry he's unable to be here this evening, but without his wholehearted support, this evening would not be taking place. Michael Winterbottom's career in film and television is our subject tonight, a director whose productivity is as striking as his diversity. I suppose the vogue word in the humanities at the moment is interdisciplinarity, and film, in a sense, is a discipline that sits across the roads of many other disciplines. Michael's films epitomise an analogous ability to move between genre, from literary adaptation to our, liter our recent cultural history, modern film noir, and films that are almost, I think, close to documentary that address the rough edges of globalisation. So this evening, we have an hour and a half for Laura and her panel to explore his work with him and then with all of you in conversation. Afterwards, there'll be a chance to continue that conversation over a drink in the Ruth Feach building at the other side of the college where you came in. And I hope as many of you as possible will come and join us. So now let me hand you over to Laura Marcus and Michael Winterbottom. Laura. 
uh, echoing um, Tim's thanks to uh, Lord Weidenfeld and to all of you for coming tonight, but particularly to uh, Michael Winterbottom. We're delighted that he can be with us as our inaugural Humanitas Visiting Professor for Film and Television. And it's a particular pleasure to have him here this week, um, in which his most recent film, The Look of Love, um, about Paul Raymond, the King of Soho, is to be um, shown, uh, it opens in London um, after appearing at um, the Sundance Film Festival uh, and also in Berlin. So this is then a very uh, busy week for Michael, but I imagine all weeks are pretty busy for someone who's directed over 20 feature-length films during the last two decades um, and has acted as uh, executive producer for his company Revolution Films for, for many further projects. Now our plan for the evening is to show a compilation of clips from a number of Michael's films, uh, and this has been put together by my colleague in film studies, Andrew Cleven, um, and uh, sitting next to him is my colleague in modern languages in film, uh, Nikolai Lubecker. After the film clips, Nikolai, Andrew and I will be putting some questions to Michael about his films and his filmmaking uh, before opening the question period out to you, uh, the audience, and I hope, I'm sure you will have questions, and uh, that's not a threat. Um, I'm sure there will be questions. Uh, and as Tim has said, we'll close perhaps around seven or so, uh, and then you're invited to the drinks reception here at St. Anne's. But with, without further ado, we will, all of us, I think, come down from the stage, though Andrew wanted to say a quick word about technology yeah, matters. Just, just very quickly, um, Laura asked me to put together this 20-minute compilation of Michael's film. I want to apologise in advance for some of the loss of quality on the image, which comes from basic PC technology and some AVI file conversions, which some people will understand what I mean uh, by that. I also want to apologise for the uh, sequence from Jude, which is in the wrong ratio, wrong shape, which was not my fault, but the commercial DVD I was taking the clip from. Um, so, okay, thank you. of Jim Thompson crime novel. You've directed three uh, films which in their very different ways adapt novels by Thomas Hardy. We've seen clips from three of them. Jude, 1996, The Claim of 2000, which is loosely based on The Mayor of Casterbridge. Uh, Trishna, 2011, a reworking of Tess of the Dervidals. Then, of course, we've seen the marvellously reimagined uh, Tristram Shandy of your A Cock of the Bull story. Um, you've recently said about the, the look of love um, that the idea would be that it would be a bit like an 18th century picaresque novel, such as Mole Flanders. That's trying to give it some sort of credibility. Just <laughs> <laughs> intellectual, intellectual okay. justification. Um, right, you see the it's actually a tawdry tale of Paul Raymond and so on. Okay, uh, you were talking about Paul Raymond there, but okay, so intellectual credibility. So one question would be why you need to give it intellectual credibility, but the other would be what the importance of literature is for your filmmaking. You're a student of English at Oxford. Does, do you feel that's played a part? Um, I think it varies from film to film. I mean, every time you make a film, 
it's a very specific set of circumstances. So you can't, I don't think it would be, I don't think it makes sense to generalize very much. In the case of Jude, for example, that was a book I loved. And um, I sort of read it before I came to Oxford. And uh, I, when I, I did a film course once and I did like a two minute version of it, I'd always wanted, I'd always loved that, the idea of making a film with that book. And so uh, we, we would go to chance. We showed a thing I'd made on t TV, a uh, film festival in Toronto. And someone at the BBC said he'd give us the money for any film script we wanted to do. So we chose that. So that was a very specific kind of desire to, to adapt that book. Uh, whereas, for example, the claim came out of a conversation between me, Frank Cottrell Boyce, and Andrew Eaton, the producer, where we were looking for some sort of Western, and we kind of thought it'd be good to be sort of Irish Western. And then it was, like, and then Frank suggested we should adapt the Mayor of Casperage to it. So each, each. Each project is very different, you know, and it doesn't really matter where the idea comes from. You've just got to be interested enough in the idea to, to actually spend the kind of time working on it. Mm -hmm. But I have read that you, <coughs> you're suggesting that Hardy was important for you in the Trishna adaptation because he represents a, a society on, on the brink of change. This, so that there is something about perhaps less the characters and the situations of those texts that plays its role. I think in a way, I mean, part of Trishna was having made Jude. I think Hardy is a much more radical novelist than people give him credit for, and especially the last, you know, two, two novels, well, Jude and, and Tess, with a kind of, I think, a quite radical novels about the way in which society is changing at the end of the Victorian era. And so having made Jude is a very straight adaptation. It's very hard to get ideas of social change and progress and, uh, and any radical ideas into a period adaptation because as soon as you shoot something, it just looks like a kind of, a kind of like some nostalgic kind of look back at the past. It's very hard mm -hmm. to kind of get the edge to a period film. So I think that was part of the you know the reason for Tess. I was in India uh, looking for locations for another film and went to the to the village where we ended up filming uh, filming uh, Trishna, and it seemed to me that all the all the kind of same changes. That, were, that Hardy's writing about were, were happening in India in a contemporary way. You know, you had, I was with a crew from uh, Mumbai who had all, every modern gadget, but we were in a village which was you know, incredibly sort of locked into the way of life that had been going for, for centuries. And it seemed like that kind of clash of the modern and the traditional was what Hardy's writing about. So that was, mm -hmm. the, you know, so it was more kind of feeling like, well, maybe making a modern version of India would be able, would be able to get more of that kind of sense of Hardy's kind of politics into that, or not necessarily politics, but his view of society into that than we were able to when we did Jude. Mm -hmm. And what about a Cock and Bull story? I mean, was... Um, Cock and Bull story was... Um, when we, we did a, the first thing I worked on with Steve Coogan was 24-hour uh, party people and worked on the script with Frank Cottrell Boyce. And when we were kind of working on that, one of the things we talked about was like, how to tell the story. And part of that it just came from Tony Wilson. He was a TV presenter and he told us lots of stories. But part of it was also the idea that maybe that Tony's attempt to tell his kind of version of what happened to him had some parallels to, to the sort of way in which the storytelling is handled in Tristan Shandy. So we talked about Tristan Shandy in relation to that project. And I wanted to work with Steve again, and we, we spent quite a lot of time thinking of other ideas. And in the end, we thought, well, well maybe just go back to Tristan Shandy and have a go at that. Mm -hmm. right. okay. It's a, it's so a peg. <laughs> I mean, in that film, we, sort of, we, we have the period section which you saw a bit of, and then there's a whole section which is he's sort of a part way through, you know, at the end of the day, he's filming, Steve steps off set, and you have a the one night with Steve's trials and tribulations kind of uh, be, before he steps back on set at the end. So it kind of felt that that kind of playful kind of uh, handling of narrative, which, which Steve is really brilliant at doing, I think, it, 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 you know, it's something that, 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 that uh, Stern does and, and that will kind of like, will be, will be, can provide a kind of context for Steve to be, mm -hmm. to, to kind of play himself. Right. In your, in your recent <coughs> films, you seem not to be using 
screenwriters quite as much and you've moved more towards improvisation, is that true? No, I think it's, it's patchy, it varies. Mm. And the, yeah, I think when you're directing, it's always a collaboration with ev everyone. You, know, you collaborate with the actors, with the with the cameraman, with the editor, you know, and it's the same with the writer. So it's, yeah, I think, you know, I think sometimes uh, credits give a slightly sort of false impression of how it happens. I think perhaps also people sometimes assume that a project starts with the writer, and then at some point the producer or the director can be involved as a, as an actor. But you know, it's not. You know, for instance, with Twenty Four Hour Party People, that was an idea that me and Andrew, the producer, had, and then we went to Steve and said would you want to play Tony Wilson? And then we went to Frank and said, do you want to write the script? So the, the, it's always a collaboration, you know, and, and most of the films that I've worked on, we do small independent films. So most of them are ideas that I've had or had with, you know, with other people, and then we, get, then we gradually develop them with a writer, rather than it being a sort of a studio system where you just get a script and you direct it. And it yeah, but I do like improvisation, I, and I do like the idea that actors... You know, when you cast a film, it's a huge impact on a film. I like the idea that once you're choosing your actors, they can have as much input as possible on who their character is and what the story is. That obviously means it's a, it's, it's a, you know, that obviously affects the, you know, it means the script isn't a kind of prison for them, but it does mean to say that a writer's not involved. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. Okay, I mean, thinking about, about border crossings and, and genre crossings, and I think the thing that comes up most frequently in discussions of your film is this crossing of the boundary or border between fact and and fiction, but particularly um, uh, Wealth of Sarajevo and, and uh, The Road to um, Guantanamo, which use a lot of archive footage, but reconstructions, reenactments as well. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the, what the, the meaning of this crossing between fact and fiction um, is for you, and what you feel about the realism that so many of your films are. Uh, Work with or you know indebted to. I mean, is it is it a political or an aesthetic and an artistic imperative? Do you think? Um, I'm not sure. Um, I think if, again, I think probably it, it depends on the circumstances. Uh, I think probably for me, uh, th there is some fun to be had, pleasure to be had in playing with the boundaries between fact I mean, the case of Wagner Sarajevo, I, mean, I think if you take Wagner Sarajevo and Road to Guantanamo, they're, they're two completely different approaches from my point of view. Wagner mm -hmm. uh, Sarajevo is based on a, a, a book by Michael Nicholson, who was an ITN journalist who uh, covered the war in Sarajevo fairly briefly, but took out uh, an orphan and adopted an orphan. And uh, so, so, so that's, for me, that was a starting point for a way of looking at what had been going on in the war. We actually worked on that, we started working on that whilst the war was still happening, but by the time we shot it, the war just finished, and, and so that was a kind of a peg, and, and in that we sort of fictionalised his character slightly, we called him Michael, I can't even remember what we called him, we called him Michael something else, to kind of indicate that this was not a strictly a kind of like exactly what happened to him and, and the girl he adopted, but we used the kind of basic story of that to also incorporate lots of other things that have been going on in, in, Bos in Bosnia and in Sarajevo in particular during the war, so it was a kind of fictional, uh, it was kind of fiction, fiction in, the, in that kind of factual context. Whereas Road to Guantanamo, we tried to... I mean, that, that has two different approaches to telling. One is they tell their story, and the other is we, we create it. But everything they say is what they... I mean, I'm not saying it's necessarily everything they say is true, but everything in the film is what they say. So it's completely... It's using recreation as a way of, of telling a story that would be quite hard to kind of get to grips with without that. But it's, there's not a sense... We're not trying to fictionalise that at all. And in a sense, the same is true of... Um, of uh, A Mighty Heart, which you saw, which is the story of uh, uh, Mayan Pearl, whose husband was kidnapped and then beheaded. 
And in a way, that, that was all taken very much from Mayan's book and working with Mayan, but then also with all the people in that house who were with her, like journalists and American agents and Pakistan police officers. We met all of them, all the actors kind of worked with them very closely to try and make sure that everything that we put in that film was as accurate as it could be. You know. mm -hmm. Uh, um, but on the other hand, obviously, if you're playing with fact and fiction in the context of, say, the trip, where it's just, is it really Steve or is it Steve playing Steve, then it's a different thing. And I, I, you know, I also like the idea that some things you control and some things you don't control. So to go back to the improvised thing, I like the idea that things could be happening in the film that you haven't planned for and you haven't put in there. You know, I, I, I hate working on stages where you control everything. I much prefer to work on location and, and to work in kind of area where it feels like there could be some things that happen that you're not controlling and you haven't planned. Mm -hmm. sure. Did you want to put in the Yeah, some, 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 some uh, forms of this massive realism, um, especially um, in relation to the style of the film. The vast majority of the films, I think only, if you're inside me, but you can correct me on this, the vast majority of your films use this font better cinema verite style of very mobile, hurried camera, a lot of edits. Um, Brisk editing, a sort of commitment to immediacy in some way. And this isn't just in your news or, 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 or sort of political ones, it's true of Wonderland, as we saw, and, and, and Jennifer, and, and also the Coogan comedies. And I, and I wondered what was at stake in this aesthetic for you, in this style of, 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 of filmmaking. It's rather different to say the very careful, uh, studied American mise en scene type of filmmaking. So I, I wondered what was at stake in it. As you well, I mean, partly, depend, I mean, it depends what you want your relationship to the actors to be and the actor's relationship to the camera to be. So, I mean, partly, part, the editing style is partly uh, connected to that because, I mean, if you want the actors to be able to improvise and you want them to be able to sort of wander around and uh, go where they want to go and say what they want to say, then you have to have quite a mobile camera too. And then clearly that, that doesn't, you know, you, you, that doesn't uh, kind of in a way lend itself to the idea of a very organised shot and kind of, you know, you, you're, not set, you're not setting the shot for exactly what the content is because they're making the content up each time. So there's lots of films they do where, you know, we might shoot for 10, 15, 20 minutes in takes and the actors can, can, are free to kind of do what they feel right is during those 15, 20 minutes and then we talk about it and then we, re, and then we go again. So in a sense, the editing is probably, to some extent, a kind of a, a, a product of that. That you're then you're, not necessarily it's quick, but that you're looking for sections of, of the film that you find interesting. So it's not what's in the script. It's not how the, the, that particular bit of dialogue relates to a kind of a, a, you know kind of a particularly kind of organised shot. But it's more like that mood of that or the rhythm of that you like, and therefore you put it in. You gradually pick out the bits you like and assemble the film that way. I guess that means that in a way it's going to be almost inevitably quite cutty because you have, a, you have, instead of having one 90-minute script done 20 times, you have 25 different 90-minute scripts, and so you, you're picking between those scripts. So it's a little quite a of footage and then more yeah. work in the editing. Yeah. 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 Um, you, you, you led me to my next question about performance. It was um, watching your films back, back in the last few weeks, one of the really impressive things about them are some of the wonderful performances. Uh, the two in them, and I, I just was thinking of Colin Firth and the daughters in Jennifer, Angelina Jolie, Stephen Delaney in Welcome to Ariadne, Samantha Morton, Frida Pinto, and Bryden and Coogan. These are really, you know, this can't be a fluke that people keep giving excellent performances in your films. Um, but is it, is it, I mean, I was interested in about being what you. What do you feel you're saying to actors? What are they? I suppose it differs on everything. But something about that relationship between uh, 
how do you get this great performance? Well, I mean, I think obviously, is a, you know, you, the idea is you're trying to create a context where people can do something that, that you know that that you find interesting that they and that they find interesting. So, I'm, I mean, I've done quite a lot of films where it's a mixture of people like, say, Angelina Jolie, and in the same room, you know, people who are totally non-professional. We had like taxi drivers from Karachi acting in the scenes with Angelina. People, you know, people who hardly ever watch films, let alone had acted in a film before. And I think, you know, and, and equally, you know, we, you know. Um, the same say we did, I did a film called In This World, which is about two refugees coming from uh, Pakistan to Britain, and they were two, you know, the two refugees we found, and I think you know, their performances, some performances, I think are the kind of best ones. So I think it's about just providing a context for, for actors to feel comfortable. And in the case of Steve and Rob, they uh, you know, basically just have to turn the camera on, they get going, uh, and it's a question of just trying to shape what they're doing. But you know, in general, I'd say it's, fi it's trying to find you know, a, a kind of way that the scene feels real, you know, because you know, obviously filming is a very artificial kind of thing. It's like trying to find some way that filming feels natural enough and real enough that they can, you know, relate to each other. And I, and I like it when you get actors, you know, uh, who are kind of trained in one way, but working with people perhaps who have no training at all and, and the way in which that kind of makes them think again. And it's, I think that's partly why I don't like, they say, that controller set. I think, you know, like say, for instance, Wonderland, that was the first film we really did without any control on the set, and we filmed it all in Soho and, and Brixton, and we would kind of be filming in the streets of Soho, and, and, they, and the actors had to always pay attention to what was going on around them. If she was working in the cafe, there were other customers coming in and out of the cafe, so there was always a sense of chaos going on on set, but it meant that the actors constantly had to calibrate what they were doing as actors and performers when they had a kind of rough script with what was going on around them and make it try and make, it, make the two things blend in together. And the same with Frida Pinto and Trishna. You know, Frida... Frida um, Peter plays a character who lives in this small town called Ossian. And, and, and so we found a family uh, who, where the dad was the driver of a, of a the sort of truck that is, is the, the, the character is the driver of in the story. And we used all their family, all of that family in the house, to be the family in the house that Frida was living in. So Frida had to go in as an actor kind of from Mumbai, but kind of t totally blend in with a family that, you know, had done no acting before. And, you know, had to spend enough time there so that gradually, when we went there and filmed, it felt like Frida was part of that family and they couldn't really see the seams between Frida and the other brothers and sisters that she was acting with. I mean, you've, you've, used, you've gone back to some of the same actors, so within this very wide range of genres, there are act actors you return to, and Shelley Henderson being one. Yeah, I mean, it's, di it's different. It's always nice to go back to actors. I don't know, it's, you know, I don't I, I, it's always good to go back to work with people again. It's always easy to work with people again, whether it's writers or crew or, or actors. Actors are the hardest ones to work with because they have to be right for the part. So it's, even if you love an, working with an actor, you have to have a part that makes sense for them. So it, they are the hardest group to kind of keep as a team in a way. So it's been possible with Steve a little bit because with Steve Hume, because those films are sort of all built around Steve because he's the central character. And then someone like Shirley has been good because she's very versatile. She doesn't mind doing sometimes a smaller part and sometimes a bigger part. But often it's quite hard, you know, to, to, to really find a role. You, you, you're working with someone, but it's quite hard to kind of ever feel you come across another role where that would be the right person. So it's, it's, I, you know, I think some directors obviously do much more, but I think that perhaps because they're working in a narrow area, so it's easier to kind of keep going back to the same actors. Sure. Yeah, one, fi one final thing. I might be going out on a limb here a bit, but the, one of the things that's traditionally said in, in, in criticisms on you and, and things is that you, you're an eclectic director. You never do the same thing. And Laura, Laura's said some things around around that. And um, I, I was tr I was trying to sort of counter this and to see if I could find something that was in every one of your films. <laughs> and um, um, apart from that style I pointed out, which is in a lot of your films, I thought there was a sort of thematic or a dramatic thematic. And you can. You know, 
keep smiling at me while I talk, um, uh, which was that um, in this very unstable atmosphere of, of the films, which is reflected in the style, the sort of choppy, unstable style, you have a, often a central figure that's calm or trying to maintain some calm in the middle of it, even someone like Coogan. And I, and I thought that Jolie in, in uh, a character... In, uh, and so when, in the sequence we showed, she terrible pierce, you know, like searings to the self-possession she's been trying to keep. And it's true in Jennifer with, with, with Colin Firth as well. I wondered if the calm people in the middle of yeah. chaos... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not aware of that. I think, I think it's always legitimate for people to look at books or films or whatever and come out on them. I'm not sure it's legitimate for the writer or the person who's done it to, to come at themselves here, because anyway, it's, it's a different process, isn't it, making something and... Talking about it, I mean, I, I, maybe, maybe that the occasional eruptions of pain from calm people. Is I'm not sure. I mean, what, what I would say the more more obvious one might be slightly that there's quite a lot of stuff about uh, about exile or you know, like, like leaving home. So you know, whether it's the claim, where it's about the gold rush people who've left to try and find a new life, or in this world, which in a way is the same story, but in modern context, the people refugees trying to come here, or you know, Colin being in Italy, or whatever. There's quite a lot about people who are away from home, losing home, their relationship to home, and that kind of sense of of exile, but then I think probably you could apply that theme to any film and find a way of, of justifying it. So there's not a no. I think um, we've talked about the teamwork. Um, so, so there's one dimension we haven't talked about yet, so I'd like to bring in the spectator. Um, and it's something I thought about when I was um, watching in particular the, the, the two very powerful opening sequences to, to Genova and to Welcome Sarajevo. And I'll just kind of talk uh, to those who haven't seen uh, Genova. Uh, so so uh, it opens with, with a mother and her two daughters driving in a car, um, and they're playing a game. And at a certain point, the youngest daughter, who's about eight, nine years old, she becomes so absorbed in the game that uh, she forgets they're driving a car, and she puts her hands over the, the eyes of the mother. Um, and this, the, the, the scene goes, uh, or the screen goes black, um, and we have a, a crash on the screen. Uh, and then uh, there's a cut, and the girl wakes up in her bed, and we just have time to think that this was just a bad nightmare. Uh, and then we realize that it was a nightmare, but it was a nightmare about something that actually did happen. We see the bruises on her face and, and on her sister's uh, arm, etc. Uh, so, so in a very, very short space here, we go from, from tragedy uh, to, oh, sorry, from play to tragedy to relief to tragedy. Uh, and when I watched that, I have a daughter that age, uh, I was kind of completely, I'm not going to last another hour and a half for this. Uh, so, so and then nothing, the then nothing happens for the next hour and a half, so you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I was wondering, uh, because in that way you've opened the spectator to really want to empathize with the, with the little girl, and I was wondering to what extent you kind of think about the spectatorial response when you... When you make a scene like that, and some, you, you, I could have taken out the scenes, but yeah, it's very visceral viewing experience very often. I mean, I, I think that, that in relation to that particular one, then I think, um, I mean, obviously you're, you, you think about, every, every, you, when you make your film, it's usually two or three years, you're, you're working on the script or the idea before you make the film, and then you film it, and then you spend a year cutting it. So in a sense, you've thought, you've generally thought about all these things quite a lot. It doesn't mean to say necessarily you've thought in a very coherent way. Um, I mean, I think that particular film, in a sense, I'm not entirely joking that nothing happens for the next 90 minutes, because it is, the re I think probably the starting point was wanting to make an observational film about a father and two daughters. 
And then, of course, you have to think, well, what is the story? What is, is, is there a way of making that in a way that, you know, kind of makes the situation kind of uh, uncertain enough, kind of like dangerous enough that you want, you're interested enough to know, you know you're interested enough to just watch them for that, for that period of time. And I guess, I guess to some extent, the, the killing the mother off was a rather cynical way of, of doing that, that by having the sense of, of guilt, the girl has uh, guilt, which is, to some extent, in a sense, is, is justified by what happens in a way that, although you can say, of course, it's not her fault, but, but she's, she's complicit enough, she's involved enough in her mum's accidental death that she feels guilty. Uh, that kind of felt like a way of making you worry enough for her and, uh, and her sister uh, to want to be engaged in, in that relationship. But, but you know, but then, then in a way, I kind of wanted then the family to be the film to be about actually the little details of family life and the little details of relationship with your children and, and with your sisters and so on, and, and to be about guilt and loss, but also be just be about about what it is to be in a family. You know? So, so I mean, yeah, that, I mean, it's not as though you think, okay, what we'll do is we'll set up a really nasty opening that might keep you going. But you obviously, as you think about all this, about can you, you know, will the film sustain that? Is you're aware of, of those kind of issues. It's, so, hard, so it's always hard to judge. A way to say that would be to say that, well, because my next question was whether you think that there's something, because you create very physical viewing experiences uh, with, with, with films, uh, well, with The Killer Inside Me, with uh, also some of the controversial, uh, the violence sometimes, sometimes the sexuality. Uh, it's very visceral. Um, sometimes the music also does that. Um, so, so there is an idea of something you can do by creating this this role experience, you can communicate something in that way that you wouldn't be able to communicate in any other way? Um, yeah, yeah, I guess so, I guess so. I mean, I'm not, in terms of, if you mean in relation comparison, say, to dialogue about it, I mean, I'm, yeah. in general, I'm, I mean, maybe this connects to the whole thing, thing you were saying about the writer, I'm not, not a big fan of, like, dialogue that gives you, like, very constructed dialogue that is well-written dialogue, which gives you uh, kind of the, 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 what's going on in the character's head or gives you the meaning of the film. I'm not very interested, to be honest, in the kind of well-constructed narrative where the character goes on a journey and learns something about himself or herself and at the end of it all is kind of like, you know, kind of like, you know, has this new insight and become a better person. I, I think that, that kind of like three-act structure and that kind of arc is something that is so, is so unconnected to the real world that it's a lie about the real world. That it's, not, it's not a distillation of what people's lives are, it's just a lie about how people are, people's lives are. So I'd rather have a rather messy story where things kind of happen in a random way. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of the films I do are based on real events or real people. It's, it's partly being interested in those events, but it's partly because if you say, okay, I'm taking, taking the story of uh, what happened to Maggie Nicholson in Sarajevo or what happened to Marianne Pearl in, 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 in Pakistan, there's a whole bunch of real facts. So, so instead of where you started with a blank page, the, the very, there'd be a lot of pressure to make it the, everything coherent and everything makes sense. You can just get away with things not making sense because of it's, well, this is what happened. And that kind of lack of coherence about real stories is something I quite like. Is there a strategy to provoke? Annoy. So a strategy to annoy. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, not deliberately, but I don't, I don't mind that idea. I mean, sometimes, maybe occasionally, want to give someone a little poke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can I just open it up to the for a second? I just wanted to ask about, because you started off in um, working in television and mm -hmm. then moved to film, and you've, you've gone back to work on some television projects. Do, is, are they, are, I mean, they are different, but I wondered how you would... I mean, I think, I think again, I mean, it's the same thing. I think you've got to, it's, it, it, if you generalise, it tends, I think you tend to 
get it wrong. I mean, so for instance, if you do a big studio film, you know, you're in a very, you know, one particular kind of set of kind of economic relationships, if you like, and, and probably in some ways as a director making a big studio film, it's not, your role is not a million miles away from if you're a director working on a big TV series, you know, because your role as director is defined by things like, you know, the, 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 you know the, just the economic interest of the, of the series by, this, by the channel of its TV or the studio, it's a studio film by the producer being kind of charged of a long-running thing or a franchise or an extremely kind of big event. So, but, so, and equally, the sort of stuff I do, which is low-budget independent films or low-budget independent TV, your, your relationship to those things is quite similar as well because you have a lot of freedom. You're at the margins of cinema or the margins of TV, so you can kind of do what you want. Uh, so, so you know, but but you know, but so obviously the the context is of watching is very different. I mean, watching here, you know, you know, like people, you, you, know, you spend a lot of time about how things look and so on, and, and the rhythm of film or the, the sound of the film, and then even when you go to the cinema, sometimes it's played, you know, really too loud or really too quiet. Then of course people are watching it on a DVD or watching it in a totally different context, often on the wrong ratio. Uh, yeah, you, watch, you watch it here, you, the sounds are out of sync with the pitch and so on. So there's a whole th So yes, there's a, there is that kind of sense that, that it's, you know, if you make something, the cinema is a great place for it to be because you're more in control of it there or people are more focused on the screen in the cinema than they are at home on TV. But I think it, the sort of stuff I make doesn't really affect how you make it that much because it's, in a way it's all intended to be... Um, it's, it's more to do, you know, for me, it's not, we're, not, we're not aiming to drag the audience along. I think, you know, certain films, you want the audience to all be scared at this point, laugh at this point, cry at this point, be, kind of be, be happy at this point. Whereas I quite like films that, where they're, they're messy enough that perhaps some people in the audience are engaged with one thing and, and other people aren't, and it's mm -hmm. a little bit more uh, open-ended. Right, which is sort of going to apply to, to you for your question. But we should open up to the audience now, and I'm sure you do have <coughs> questions. And, uh, it's interesting, you're talking about uh, your films almost as though they're documentaries, that's, that is documentaries of actors acting, performance performing. And I wondered how, how the, the balance between filming and editing works for you, because nowadays the technology lets you edit as you film almost. Do you use that and do you go and look at rushes while, while you're filming or not? No, I think actually the opposite is the case. But, uh, you know, because when you used to film on film, it, there was something quite kind of magical and obscure about what you were getting because you'd be shooting through a lot of filters. You know, the, you're not seeing, you know, when you, when you, what you were watching on set wasn't what you were getting on the film. So you had to go to look at rushes to see what you got and whether you got what you imagined you had. Whereas now, with digital, if you film digital, even when you're filming on film, that what you're ten, you, because there's a lot of digital kind of post, really you t people tend to shoot the actual picture much more much straighter. So really, when you're on set, if you're watching a monitor on set, you're kind of seeing what's being recorded. It's not how it will be in the final film. So you, in a way, you've watched all the rushes all day. So I think actually you watch less. But I think um, I think the balance has changed. I think I think you're right that in a way. Most of the sort of filmings that I do, and I think it applies to most films in a way, are to some extent a, a document of what you've done that day. You know, it's like most cases, you know, and so the old stuff I do, you're, you're in a particular place on a particular day, where there's a certain thing, you've got a bunch of people in front of the camera, they're saying a certain thing. So in a way, that there's a, they are a kind of doc, they're a record of that day, there's, they're a transparent record of that day, and afterwards you turn them into a kind of story, you turn them into the film you're making. And uh, I like that aspect of filming, you know, I like that aspect that, that, that you, are, you have to get, you have to, you can only record what's there, you know, and, that you can only, you, and, and that's why I like, you know, going to places where 
the location you know, is important and it's perhaps not something that we're controlling, we're inserting, instead of like, you know, having a set and you know, kind of it's all kind of serves the fiction, we, we take a kind of character and put them into a situation that's a real situation relatively out of control and they have to respond to that situation. So it's a kind of dialogue between the fiction and, and, the, and the controlled fiction, if you like, and the uncontrolled stuff that's going on as part of the film as well. Um, uh, Steve Coogan's character in the trip, he refers to a lot about um, a desire to work with auteurs and things like that, and yet, um, which would imply like a distinction between one type of filmmaker and another, and yet you kind of spoof the idea of like an auteur um, with Naomi Harris's interest in like auteur theory and things like that in um, Cock and Bull Story. So, if you're not an auteur, but you're also not interested in, say, like you were saying before about three-act structure or things like that, how would you um, characterise yourself? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think... Um, I, I don't know. Uh, and it, I'm not, it's obviously not an activity I spend an awful lot of time doing. I wake up in the morning and wonder what sort of person I am. But, um, I mean, I, th I, you know, I think... I think like, if you, to get, about auteur theory, I think... The idea, you know, the original idea of that was a, was a kind of, was a way of, of looking at films a different way. It was like a, you know, it's kind of a way, a auteur, a way of thinking about kind of what the director was doing, which then became corrupted in just that idea that anyone who writes the script and directs the film is, is, an author, is the author of the film, you know, kind of in a very boring kind of sense, really. In a sense, you know, it's like people who work across a range of films who are trying to show the, the fact there is, some, there is something that directors do across a whole range of films that is still something, you know, which, even though you know, it's, it's intangible, it's like their kind of, it's their signature. And I think, um, but I mean, I really, I, really, I really don't kind of, I, mean, I think we were just making fun of, I mean, with Naomi Harris's kind of thing was just have a bit of fun. It wasn't like a big kind of angry thing. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and you know, equally, Steve wanting to work. I can't remember. He does say who he wants to work with. I think I can't remember who he says. But that was probably Steve just hoping that the director would call up and ask him <laughs> if he wanted to work with him. Um. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, so, given that your films are these uh, kind of messy real life. Things, you know, characters don't go through these uh, arcs of self-discovery. Uh, do you find it difficult to find uh, endings for your films? Um, sometimes. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, obviously you want the film... It's, it's a good question. It's like you, you obviously in the end should go try and find some shape for the film that includes kind of what the beginning is, what the end is. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I guess sometimes. I mean, I, I think, for instance, in Geneva, that was hard to find an ending because, in a way, the setup was kind of easy. That there's, the girl feels, um, the girl feels, you know, kind of guilt for her mum's death, but hard to know how to resolve it. Endings tend to be. It's quite hard to avoid an ending being neat and, and kind of feeling like it, it kind of ties everything up in a simplified way. But at the same time, it's hard to just leave something in the middle. So that that was one I think was a problem of the film that we never did really discovered a kind of way of dealing with, with how to end the film. It was always kind of a, something that kind of kept changing, something we couldn't, we couldn't work out. But I mean, obviously, you know, you know a lot of films, they, there's a natural conclusion. If it's an adaptation of a book, that can give you a clue. Always good to end up, like Trishna, we end up with her killing herself. That's always good. Once the character's dead, <laughs> pretty well guaranteed you can end the film on that point. So it's like there are kind of like some things you can do to try and simplify the problem. No, we didn't end. We didn't. I mean, because um, 
from the very beginning, we, the, that was adapted by a writer called Hossein Amini, but it, again, it was like we had the idea of doing it and I wanted to do it and we went to Hulse and from the beginning I said I didn't want to go right to the end. Uh, I wanted to stop, uh, to stop at the point we do, which is kind of when, when they separate, when, when Jude and Sue separate, but not go through the whole extra leg of going back to Arabella. Yeah, I think, I, think I, I kind of felt it was, it was a better, better place to end with his kind of pain at that point rather than the kind of the gradual degeneration. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, one thing with Hardy is, as with a lot of kind of those types of books, there's just too much plot. I mean, you know, there's a lot of plot. They are kind of melodramas in themselves, but they're melodramas over 500 pages. So if you condense that down to 90 minutes, they're incredibly melodramatic. And it's quite interesting watching those clips, because actually the melodramatic bits of the clips are the ones that work best, because you get condensed into 90 seconds, a lot of stuff. But over 90 minutes or two, two hours, that can be quite frustrating, whereas films which are just like observational bits, people chatting, are terribly into it. like, just what the hell is, are they chatting about? It's nothing. But, the, but in a way, it can gradually accumulate a kind of different sort of uh, power, perhaps over a longer period of time. But, um, but yeah, so we just, we just chopped, chopped the end off to... So, so in a way, the trip's the perfect thing for you. <laughs> it just remains, aren't they? Chatting in restaurants. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. I, 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 well, yeah, yeah. yes, that is true. That, we, we, we made a film version of the trip. So there was a, abroad it was a film, here it was six half hours. So in the film, I think you can just discern the outline of a story in that, in that it, in it is a little bit more about their relationship, less about the restaurants, and, and more, and, you know, so you're more, you feel more, perhaps a little bit more sad for Steve that his life is so empty and desolate at the end, uh, as opposed to Rob's perfectly happy family bliss. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, uh, Jude, oh, Hi, um, I have a question. Um, several of your films are situated in, in environments that are culturally very different. How do you um, prepare yourself for shooting there and how do you situate yourselves within these environments? Um, yeah, it's true. I do a lot of filming abroad. Um, I, think I, I think it's, one, it's, different, it's diff, diff, different. I think either there's got to be a character... In most cases, I think there's got to be a character you feel you're close enough to, you can identify with that character enough that, that you feel able to have a perspective on the story and the place. Uh, occasionally, I mean, again, to go back to uh, In This World, I think that there was the opposite. In This World has only, is basically only two characters, and they're both uh, Afghan refugees who, who at the start are living in, a, uh, in Peshawar in Pakistan and, get, and come to Britain. And there was, what we did there was we, we sort of, we, we, we constructed the journey. So we, you know, from talking to lots of people and you know, doing a lot of research and doing the journey ourselves, we kind of like, we did what was a fairly typical, we constructed the mechanics of a fairly typical journey <coughs> of two people trying to get across all the, all the borders, they travel across over land. And then we really allowed them to, to be, you know, we, we chose the two people, obviously, uh, and Ayatollah and Jamal. <coughs> and then we just said to them that they should basically do what they feel is right. So, so we did that, you know, we basically filmed the journey, we filmed for like 5,000 miles or whatever, and we filmed the two of them with each other and allowed their relationship to develop through the film and they basically, they just responded, we would organise things for them, like we organised them being picked up on a bus in Iran or whatever, uh, and, and, but they would, they, we didn't tell them what to say, what to do, and so everything from their the, the character away came from them. So that, 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 you know, that felt like the legitimate, that, that, you know, that, that they would basically be the authors of their characters, they would be the people who kind of decided how their characters would behave. But normally it's more that we have a, you know, say, welcome to Sarajevo, you have a British journalist in Sarajevo, or even in Trishna, you know, Riz's character is a British guy who's gone to 
uh, has gone to India. So, so it's usually by finding a kind of character that's close enough to my experience for me to feel I can make a film from their point of view in that culture. Um, <laughs> I was just wondering, um, who, are you, who are you most, um, what are the films recently that have come out that you thought, damn, I wish I'd produce that, or who are, you, who are your sort of admirers? Um, I, it's a difficult question. I think, unfortunately, I, I, I think you can tend to, sort of, when you first start watching films or when you're first enthusiastic films, it's when you have your real kind of passions. And then as you get older, it gets harder to get enthusiastic. So it sounds bad, but... But kind of, you know, it, I, I think, you know, it's, it's like with music as well, or, you know, with books, whatever. I think when, as you're a teenager or when you first come to whatever medium it is, you, 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 you take it on trust to a certain extent and you kind of fall in love with it. And then, as like, a, like in a relationship, as it goes on longer, you get a bit more uh, critical of the other par partner. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean uh, yeah, so, so, but I mean, uh, the, the, obviously, it's like joy films, but I don't have the same kind of like kind of hero worship of film, film, filmmakers or whatever that I might have had in the past. But yeah, for instance, like, like as a, I mean, this is not that reason, but, but I think you know, one of the films that I think is really brilliant that's been out last few years was City of God, which is a, a brilliant film. But it's like it's the occasional one that makes you feel that individual film is great. Well, I think when you, I started watching films, it'd be like, that filmmaker is great. I kind of don't have that feeling anymore. It's like more like film by film, which films are like. But I, I have to say, I've heard, recently heard quite a lot of other directors say that, so I feel less guilty. I, for a while, I, I was in denial that I, I, I'd stopped really being... So you don't have any directors where you think, i got to go and see the new whatever, you came up in there. Yeah, to a certain extent, you know, it's like, but then it's, 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 it's compromised by all sorts of random factors in a way. But, you know, like a big admirer of Soderbergh, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I, you know, it's, there's, there's lo, lo, you know, Gaspar Noé is interesting, Harmony Korean is interesting, there's like, yeah, I, I, there's lots of people I like, I'd be interested in. But, it's, you know, when you first start, just like, I love this, this, and, and, it, and obviously film, individual films you might, you might love, but not like, I, you know, I assume that if a director's made one I love, I'm going to like all the rest of them. Yeah, and director is one very small part. One of the great things about films is that it's, you know, it, there are loads of people who work on it. Everything has to come together at the right time. And, it, and loads of random elements. It's like today is a glorious day outside. You know, tomorrow might be pouring with rain. And when you're filming, you might want it to be a glorious day and it's pouring with rain all the way around. So there's loads of, you know, for the most basic thing, there's loads of random elements and there's lots of different people. So that idea that one person is, is the thread that's going to make everything work is just, is obviously ludicrous. There we go. Hi there. Um, my background is um, I've worked as an executive in a large studio and uh, I've been an executive producer of independent television programming. Kind of interested in your uh, perspective on the future of film and television in terms of technology and financing. Where's it all going? I've no idea. I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've no idea. I mean, when you when you make a film, it takes you know. It's like you, you know you work on a film for a long period of time, but even when you're actually making it, when you're full on on that particular film, it takes a year. You know, so so usually what you think is if you're in the middle of making a film, you think everything's going brilliantly, the industry's perfect, I'm busy, and then if you're not making a film, of course it's all disaster and the industry's you know kind of gone horribly wrong because you're really just bogged down in your world. I think directors you know, are really bad people to talk to about the environment around them because you're kind of locked inside your film whilst you're making it. You know, and. and most of the time, I'm, I'm making a film, so I'm not really. I don't. Know, I probably know far less than you about where TV is going and where the finance is. 
Michael, one of the amazing... I'm sure these people can answer that question for you. No, no, I'm not going to answer. I'm just going to ask it in a different way. <laughs> um, 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 but you've made a lot... One of the extraordinary things, you're a British film director and you've made a lot of films. I mean, a lot of films. I apologise for that. Well, uh, but, but so many of the story we get, there's a debut, possibly a second film, a long wait then. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, you, you will know the story better than... Uh, so w what's your secret? I mean, <laughs> I, I'm almost a film a year, we're talking a type Woody Allen type schedule of how, and obviously I don't want you to go into the absurdity of every sequence of the final thing, but what, no. do you have a trick that you want? Well, just, just on, on, first, on first films, I think that is a big issue. I, I was asked to judge the first film competition at, at the London Film Festival like two years ago. And I think of the 180 films or whatever there, 65 or something were the first films. Well, th what that means, I mean, that sounds great in a way, six, five first-time filmmakers. What it means is very few people making more than two or three films, really, because it's like, just by, by, you know, the statistics. So it is a problem, I think, that, I mean, it obviously is the easier these days to make your first film, because people will work for nothing. People, you know, the technology is very cheap. You can edit now, you can shoot now on stuff that, you know, the same sort of stuff that we often film on for very low cost. So, so uh, uh, you know, everyone can go out and make a film if they want to. There's no excuse. If you want to make a film, there's no excuse for not going out and just making a film. But what that means is there are loads and loads of films, but the number of kind of places to show them is still as small as ever, if not in some ways smaller in the independent sector. So you have a problem about how to get those films out. So if everyone makes their first film, then realise, you know, then struggles to get another one made because it's like no one wants to keep working for nothing forever. You, know, you can't keep going that asking people to work for nothing. I mean, how do we make our films? I mean, I, I had a, I, I, you know, when it began, we, uh, I, uh, I, I kind of have a partnership with a producer called Andrew Eaton, so we set up a company together. So that helps, I think, because we, we trusted each other. So for a lot, of, a lot of films, you know, it's like you have to say, okay, we're going to make it. Weirdly, people want to give you money if they think you're going to make it, but they, they, they're really nervous if they think you're not going to make it. It's a very strange thing. Once you, know, once you say to them, well, we are going to make this film, then suddenly they will kind of jump off the fence. And, and, you know, and also being in a team, team together, I mean, you know, it's very hard. The timing is incredibly important in films. It's very hard to get everything to come together at the right time, the actors and so on. And so by having a relationship with one particular producer, it was easier for the timing because every, every, as we finished one film, we would be saying, okay, this is what we're going to do next. You know, and, and even at a basic level, like say with Cock and Bull Story, Cock and Bull Story, we, the finances pulled out the day before we were due to shoot. So we were, we were having to finance that film for three weeks of filming, so, which was possible because we had a company together and we, were, we like always worked together. So there was a, we trusted each other you know, and, we, and we took a risk on it. But, but if you're, as a freelance director, just going from one place to another place to try and get your film made, you can often find that things fall through just because no one's quite sure, are you really going to do this film next? And you don't know if the producer's really going to do that film next and the actor's not sure if they're going to do that film next. So everyone might want to make it, but somehow it never quite comes together. So that's one way. And then the other thing is to make them cheap. Make them cheap and then you're less likely for people to lose money because in the end you can't keep going back to people and saying, do you want to put money in this film if they've lost it? You, know, you have to try and find a way that they can get their money back. Um, hi, uh, you talked about preferring to work on location and like letting the real world intrude. Um, can you think of a particular incident when something completely random and unplanned has happened that turned out really well? Um, I'm not about turning out really well, but I mean, there's lo lots, you know, lo I think lots of kind of context. You know, um, unplanned things happen. I mean, it, it varies. You know, at one, at one extreme, it's like the trip where basically that is all completely improvised. You know, so so that. That, they, that you know, so that's unplanned in the sense that what they're saying is, is isn't really planned, and all, all we do is like go for lunch somewhere, but, or or say on in this world, you know, in, in this world we were we were traveling with the two 
the two guys, um, <coughs> uh, and we were on a, we were in Iran and we were on a bus and we were like uh, arriving at a military checkpoint. And so uh, our fixer kind of went ahead to see <coughs> if, the, if the military checkpoint were okay with us filming or whether we were going to have to kind of hide the film, the cameras, you know, to, to sort of hide the fact that we're filming there. And the guy at the checkpoint said it was it was okay, and he, he would, he, uh, but he wanted to be, uh, to be in the film. He wanted to come on and check the bus and see if there's any refugees on the bus. And then if he found any one of the refugees, he'd pull them off. So we filmed him, and he came on the bus, and he found our two guys, and he pulled them off, and that became part of the film. And then actually, I'm sorry, on that, at the end of that, was, there's was a secret, he was like, we, we asked him what he did, and he said, we normally just take them back to Pakistan, to the border of Pakistan, it's near the border. The Pakistanis said, okay, and we said, okay, we'll, we'll drive off, and then if you just go off, off road, just drive them off road into the kind of like desert area, um, and then we'll kind of cut the scene at that point, as though you're going back to Pakistan. And so he drove them off down there, and as he drove, he got into the kind of desert area, but it was like a little kind of sheltered bit with a kind of cliff thing. And they discovered some real re refugees who were kind of hiding there uh, from them. So he kind of pulled them out, but then he let them go because we were filming, so he didn't, he didn't uh, send them back to Pakistan, they carried on. <laughs> but that wasn't in the film. Uh, so far, the conversation, I don't think, has touched <coughs> at all on nine songs. And, um, there could be a good reason for that. Yeah, well, I was wondering whether it's for reasons of decency, but um, uh, the first thing that I was interested in was how you set about structuring the film, because in some ways it seems like the archetypal Michael Winterbottom film with very loose plotting, seemingly random events, but in other ways it seems quite schematic with the nine songs commenting on the, the events and the relationship. And secondly, I was wondering to what extent the eye-wateringly explicit imagery was designed primarily to provoke. Um, yeah. Uh I mean, it was deliberately trying to like not have too much narrative. It kind of felt like I, I kind of think like love songs are much better at conveying what a, being in a relationship is like, or or uh, thinking about a relationship that you've you've fallen out of is like than films are. I think because because love songs you kind of sense like this, you sort of sense an idea of a story without it really being a narrative. Like this is what happened. This is how I broke up with my wife or whatever it is. Whereas film romantic comedies or film love stories always have, you know, try and throw in a lot of extraneous plot, really, because, you know, the, the trouble with the love affairs from a plot is like you're in love and then you're not in love. It's like kind of like a sort of on-off switch. It's not really much plotting. So films chuck in loads of other plot to kind of, like, get around that problem. And I thought, well, love songs are better because they don't do that. They just say, I'm feeling sad because she's left me, sort of thing. And so that was part of the idea. Let's have not have narrative. And I quite like the idea of trying to reduce narrative down to a minimum or occasionally have you know, films that haven't really got much narrative, like why do we have to have so much story all the time to watch a film? So the schematic device, in a way, was partly for that, was like, okay, we haven't got a story, so we'll have a, a structure instead. Uh, and obviously, you know, because it was great fun to go and shoot bands, so we just picked bands we liked, we went and filmed the bands. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, it kind of felt also, you know, that because he's, the this, this, this story such as it is, or the shape such as it is, is he's looking back on a relationship which has ended because she's left him. So it kind of felt like the songs that he associated with her kind of made, there was some justification for having those songs in the film. And then, and then yeah, within that, it was like, the, really the starting point was, you know, a lot of stuff we do is try and be, try and shoot it as simply as possible and as naturally as possible and to make it as, uh, to make the, as, uh, to try and get rid of as much artifice as possible. And then when you get to film a love scene, normally it's incredibly 
artificial. It's like there's lots of conversations about what you can see, what you can't see. Clearly, they're not going to be making love. Can they kiss? Can they touch here? Can they touch there? And it becomes very embarrassing because there's all these conversations and you're not sure, everyone, no one's really sure what they have to do. It can become easily very embarrassing. And I just made a film called Code 46, which was a love story, where we'd had a lot of those conversations, like an awful lot of those conversations in that film. And I kind of thought, well, why? It's ridiculous. You know, it's like if we film someone eating, we get them to eat a meal. We don't get them to pretend to eat. Or, you know, you film someone fighting with someone, they fight with someone. It's like, why do we have to? What is so terrible about making love that you can't show to people making love? So then we went to the other extreme and said, OK, well, we're going to do that. Let's, just, let's start with two people making love and see how much sense of their relationship we can get just by filming them making love. Let's try and, you know, in a way, when we started, my idea was perhaps there'd be no dialogue at all, no sense at all of, of, of anything to account. It'd just be two people in a, in a room making love. And then gradually, as we went on filming it, you know, bit, little bits of dialogue occurred. But it was really to try and keep it to a minimum and just think, well, this is the antidote to all those other films about love, love you know, relationships where you never see anyone making love. This is all you're going to see is them making love. And yeah, so it is a little bit like, well, why can't you do this? Why, why shouldn't we be allowed to show this? What's wrong with this? Okay, can I follow up on that? Uh, because in that context, one, I, I wonder a little bit why you wanted to do the retrospective narrative. Mm. Why didn't you just stick to the sex and the music? Well, possibly I should have. It was, it was, I'd say it's quite a short narrative. It's just basically him him saying, I really miss her, and then we kind of <laughs> making love. So it's quite a short introduction, but if that bit was too long and too boring, we could, I'm sure, take it off and just cut straight into the making love. <laughs> but I, mean, it's, I, mean, I, guess, I guess the song idea was part of that, that kind of, you know, that kind of thing of like, you know, that it's like, it's a sort of, you know, melancholy looking back on someone's left, and that, and that, you know, I find, you know, that is sort of thing, if, it's hard to talk, talk about apart from your own experience, but, I think when people leave, you do sometimes look back on it and think about those things, don't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, hi, I've come from the uh, University of Wales Newport Film School, um, and at the moment I'm making an audio-visual essay um, about the relation between 24-hour party people um, and Brechtian theatre, and also about how the effect of breaking the fourth wall um, changes the audience perception. Um, and I'm trying to do it in the style of 24-hour as much as I can. Um, I plan to go and look at some of the old Hacienda stuff um, next week. And I was hoping after this to possibly have a little chat with you about... <laughs> <laughs> about um, this, we nearly uh, got through the hour. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, in, in, in Cock and Bull story, actually, the transition from the fiction to the, uh, to the, to the, to the stuff about Steve is they literally push out the wall of the set. They push out the fourth wall and they're off. So, so maybe you should use that technique instead. Well, you could share your ideas about the technique with the others. No, that's right. I have very, very little to say on that subject. Do it like very much. No, yeah. I'll see you in the bar afterwards. <laughs> Just moving away from film slightly, looking at your career in film and television, um, in the States it seems that lots of money is being ploughed into um, television series and they're becoming more and more popular over here as well. Um, and directors from feature films are kind of moving into making TV shows. Um, is that something you see yourself doing more in the future? And maybe a more obtuse question is, uh, can we Brits ever get as good as, as America is in, in making these series and making them so popular? Um, okay, well, uh, um, on TV, I mean, I think, um, 
I mean, I, I do do stuff that's fine partly out of TV. And in some cases, you know, it, it depends on you know, the environment. There's often kind of particular reasons why, why these you know, things happen. It's not like people love TV or whatever. It's just the finances kind of work in a certain way. I mean, in the case of, say, The Road to Guantanamo, we went to see Tessa Ross, who, who at that time, I think still does, runs both uh, film, for, film for the film side and Channel 4's drama side. And basically, she could give us, for film, she could give us 400,000 quid, and for TV, she could give us 1.3 million quid, because that is how finances are structured here. You get a kind of rate per hour on TV, roughly about 650,000 quid, or, but when they invest, when BBC Films or Channel 4 Films invest in a film, they'll only put in about 400,000 quid, and then they might do some equity on top. But for the TV show, they only give you about 400,000 quid. So it's just a very basic economic thing that means if your film is something like Road to Guantanamo, which was like documentary and obviously was not going to you know, be easy to raise finance for in the cinema, and we wanted it to happen straight away because when we make it, they just come out of Guantanamo and want it to be current. So it'd be hard to kind of go and raise that money around the world. It, just, it was just easy to take the money straight away and make it rather than trying to find some other way of financing it. I mean, in the case of like, is, you know, British TV and American TV, I have to say I'm not as big a fan of the American TV series as most people are. I think, and maybe it's just being a director. I think obviously there's a lot of good writing in those series. There's a lot of good acting in those series, but it is a machine, you know, is it, is it, is it quite a, I, and I, I find, you know, even the best series are basically kind of constructs to think, okay, is this an idea from a pilot, you know, from, a, from the very first pilot that's written and commissioned, can this idea run and run and run? Because they all essentially are aiming to run for like 70 odd episodes. And I think most of those ideas are constructed not because there's something you really want to say about that, but just like this is an idea where we can do all the permutations on this story and these characters, and they'll just run endlessly. And they are still driven by that very basic kind of filling hours and to fill as many hours as possible, to have as many plot kind of and character kind of options open that people will continue watching season after season after season. And I find that a little bit stultifying at the beginning to watch the first episode of the series thinking this is basically just designed. And no one knows what's going to be in it. They only know what's going to get. When they pilot, probably don't even know the first series. When they the first series, they don't know the second. It's just like, it's just designed to have so many options in it that they can bend it any way they can, depending on is this character popular? Is that character popular? Is this storyline working? And then they just tweak all the stories in that way to make it run. So they're very efficient, they're very well made. I don't personally find them that uh, inspiring. Maybe have time for another question, a couple of questions, one there and then, yeah? Yes, sorry, yeah. Uh, no, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Go on. Uh, Michael, uh, maybe sorry. this is like asking somebody to choose between their children, but you've made so many different films and so many varied films, but have certain ones in particular given you sort of most satisfaction, be it the making of it or the, the finished article? And are there any where you look back and think, you know, I wish I'd done that a bit differently or didn't quite work out? Yeah, obviously, yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like, it's not, I mean, obviously, don't really watch your films again after you finish them. So it's sort of like once you get finished, you may watch it a couple of times and then, you know, you don't really, you know, like kind of going back and having another look at them. So it tends to be a, a kind of odd mixture of more the really remembering the experience was the experience satisfactory and enjoy, or enjoyable. And to some extent, that will be work, you know, having it some idea of what you felt about it at the time. Doesn't really necessarily include what, you know, what you feel about it now because you don't really watch them to know what you feel about them. But so, like, you know, something, you know, something like In This World was very enjoyable because it was kind of really kind of, you know, the people we were working with were great. 24 Hour Party People was fun because everyone was pretending they were in a band and behaving extremely badly, trying to get in the spirit of Factory Records. It was kind of like the sort of vicarious experience of being that. It's fun working with Steve, you know, all the stuff to do with Steve is fun. So it's like, they're all, but it's more about the experience of working on them rather than feeling 
about the end product. And for instance, the shock doctrine was a nightmare to work on. That was a hell, so that was a bad one. So it's like the, you get good ones and bad ones. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Tim, you had a question. Yeah. <coughs> you, you said just now that because you work at the margins of film and television, that gives you your creative freedom and that you keep making movies because um, the budgets are small. How far is that ever constraining fundamentally? And so far as if someone came to you and said, okay, I'll give you a proper budget, you know, factor five, factor ten, bigger than what you get at the moment. Would you know what to do with it? Or is that fundamentally um, at odds with the sort of movies you want to make? That's a good question. I mean, I think, um, it, I think it's, it's not... Uh, it, 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 the, whether the budget is constrained, it, it, it depends on what the story is. So it depends on, really, is there a match between the money you have and the story you want to tell? So, for instance, I think probably the biggest budget film I worked on was The Claim. The Claim was sort of a film, it was about $17 million, and then about three months, two months before we shot it, it went down to $14 million or $15 million. And we had to build, it was a, like a gold rush town, which we built 7,000 feet up a mountain in the Rockies. We had to build it in the summer before the winter, because it was too cold to build it in the winter. So we'd already built a set. And in order to work at minus 25 in Canada, combined, the, the physical conditions combined with the Canadian unions meant that in the car park, when you left the car park in the morning, there was like 300 people and every sort of lunar kind of looking vehicle to get you up and down the mountain you can imagine. But on set, we have no money at all. So like, before, like two weeks before filming, we were trying to cut 25 pages from the story, all the expensive bits. It was supposed to be an epic of the building of the railroads and the pioneers trekking across America to the Gorish village. It ended up being five people in a village up a mountain because, <laughs> because, because we hadn't, we'd run out of money. So, so it, the budget is frustrating when you can't make the film you want to make. But equally, you know, you can make, you know, you get, we had like, say, you know, say Road to Guantanamo was 1.3 million, but we could do what we wanted to do on that. You know, we were able to go to, because it was very simple. So if you have a simple film, you know, you can, it, it, the budget is not necessarily considered it's small. But I mean, would I want to be given $100 million to make something? No, because you're right, I wouldn't have any, I wouldn't have a clue about what I was doing. I think there's, yes, you shouldn't be waiting for that. <coughs> could do 40 episodes of the trick. Yes, yeah, uh, <laughs> at least. <laughs> Hi, um, just to momentarily go back to uh, the question of sort of performance and your relationship with your um, actors. I was wondering, uh, you, you use you know, experienced, well-known actors such as Jolie, but then you also use spontaneous actors such as the guy in the Iranian checkpoint. Um, so I was wondering, I mean, that latter sort of usage almost seems to have a sort of third cinema sensibility and I was wondering whether uh, you could sort of outline the rewards and disadvantages of working with non-actors versus extremely well-known actors who simply by their facial presence guarantee a certain number of seats in, in a theatre. I think if you work with kind of non-professional actors, then the, the thing is, you know, you, you're using them, you're choosing them because they bring something to the part. You know, it's like there's no good choosing someone who's never acted before and then asking them to act. You know, you might, if you're going to ask someone to act, you, get, you should choose an actor. But if you want someone to be that kind of a, that person in the film and they are kind of someone close enough to that person anyway, then obviously they bring a massive amount of experience, you know, because they, they're playing a version of themselves. So I think it's like, it, it's, you know, it depends on what your film is and what you're trying to do. But I think for me, it's, you know, 
that, that is why I work with so many non-professional actors because because other you know say with the family and Trishna you know they don't have massive roles but it's really important about who that family is to understand Trishna you have to understand that family and you have to understand exactly kind of who they are in the kind of social setup of, of that town and so because they all were those people they didn't have to we didn't have to kind of think about that they didn't have to find ways of putting that into the dialogue they didn't have to you know get actors from uh, someone else just try and pretend that they could just they could just be there and and, and everything they did ma made sense in relation to who they were and obviously that is generally the role you know, the, generally the advantage you know that you get a much more natural performance and you also get a performance that's more tied into certain specific social contexts or certain cultures or certain ways of behaving mm -hmm. as opposed to something that's abstracted out into an actor kind of delivering this particular dialogue and and trying to make it you know something perhaps is more universal but but less rooted in a real in some sort of real real kind of context. I, you know, I like that, but you know, but you know, obviously, you know, when you they, then there are characters within, you know, can be within the same film where you need someone to be able to perform. And I think if you want someone to, you know, to, uh, Angelina to perform, they need to, you know, it's, it, you can't expect it, not someone who's never acted before to come on and kind of expose themselves in a way in the film. Okay, okay just maybe two last questions. One, one there, and then right, one right at the back. Um, just following on from that point, have you ever been tempted to do a war film? Um, uh, and is perhaps that one of the reasons why you've sort of strayed away from it, that the removal of that possibility to have that spontaneous element? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think um, we, have, we have kind of, kind of uh, gone around the fringes of war films. You know, I mean, uh, we've spent quite a bit of time going down to look at army footage shot in Afghanistan because everyone these days films, they all film the whole time. So you get a lot of, there's a big li army li library of archive of what's going on in Afghanistan, which is interesting. We kind of thought about the idea of stretching something around that. In some ways, it's something like Welcome Sarajevo is you know, has that, it's on the fringe of war, but obviously from a journalist's point of view. Um, I mean, I think it's just, I don't know why we haven't done one. I, mean, I think, you know, what, what, with the Afghanistan one, it kind of felt like weirdly, although it's a real, you know, obviously kind of, a, you know, it's an incredibly important story about what's happening in Afghanistan, but it kind of felt like you'd end up, in the end, you'd get back to like six guys on kind of maneuvers, you know, in Afghanistan, and you would, be, you would be in a very classic genre. It's very hard to get away with those sort of classic kind of like six guys, you got the fat one, the thin one, the clever one, the funny one, and all that sort of stuff. And you, it would be that even though you started with like, okay, let's do something kind of fresh, just never really felt that anything that I, we never really kind of found anything that felt would be fresh in, in, that, in that genre. Can I ask, um, why was it such a nightmare to make the sock, uh, shock doctrine? Uh, <coughs> because, uh, well, I, I was approached to make that, and, uh, and I was like, I, I don't know. And uh, then Naomi Klein came over, and the two producers kind of said, well, you know, we, we want to make this. They made a short film already, about, uh, which was like a short animation about, about, some of the, about the thesis of the Shock Doctrine book, which, as the title suggests, included the, use, the kind of use of torture and so on in South America. And it was a kind of panorama, you know, went, from, went through 50 years of world history from place to place. And I, in the end, I said, OK, well, I'll do a kind of um, archive version of it. The only thing I th could think of is that we do an archive and, and Naomi would narrate it. And we, uh, so then we all went together, including Naomi, to Channel 4. And they said, yes, OK, on the base, that basis. So we went off and spent three months collecting archive together, which in itself was a nightmare. That was all boring. And then after three months, Naomi hadn't signed a contract. And we showed her the archive. And she said she didn't want to make an archive documentary. It was like, well, we just spent three months getting all the archive in. And that's all the, the, only, you know, the only vision we kind of could think of to make. And we're, but she wanted to, to really 
go off and film like other things that were happening then, you know, like you know the banking crisis was happening. It's just like, well, we're not a current affairs pro, you know, team. We, you know, we have the resources. We can, we're trying to make a film which, even whenever we finish it, will never get shown until three or four months after we finish it. We we can't just spend every day running around with what's going on in the world today. So, uh, but she hadn't signed a contract, so it was quite a, a messy situation. It was a, an ongoing argument for about twelve months. I'd wake up in the night sweating about it. <laughs> That's the life of a director, the, the appalling life of a director. Brecht and many other things over, over a drink, um, to which you are warmly invited, and it's across the, uh, it's, sorry? Ruth Deitch Building. Building, which is just across the way. Um, everybody will be going there. But first, um, can we thank Michael for really huge generosity in his discussion with us? I have found it really illuminating, and I'm sure you have too. So can we give him a round of applause? <laughs>